it's easy to get the impression that that God that it's God's normal way of acting to be so like interactive with his people um you know like with miracles but if you look at it the the time of miracles is predominantly just like the time of Elijah and Elisha um and you know aside from the flood <laughs> predominantly the time of Elijah and Elisha and the time of the exodus and that's about it um, until you get to the ministry of Jesus that the miracles um, and especially in the in the miracles of Jesus that the miracles of Jesus are more often to point to Jesus and so that people would pay attention to what he's saying rather than just doing miracles for the good of the people um, the miracles during the time of like the, the flood during the time of Noah and during the time of Elijah and Elisha um, those are more often when it looks like God's church is on the very edge of disaster. Um, and so he, he does this miracle, you know, like through Gideon of sending, destroying the Midianites and preserving his people. Uh, he did the miracle of the flood and preserving his people from a world of destruction. Um, with Elijah and Elisha, he, he even sent both Elijah and Elisha out of the land of Israel where they did the miracle of raising a child from the dead, each one independently. Um, I haven't I haven't looked at this, but somebody made the comment that that Elisha did basically all the same miracles as Elijah, but but twice as many. <laughs> and uh, and and it kind of makes sense when you think of Elisha's question, or you know, Elijah says, "What can I give give to you?" And Elisha says, "Well, give me, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit." Um, which I guess that makes sense. Um, although the, I think the, the primary purpose of talking about the double portion is talking about Elisha as the, the leader of the prophets, of the schools of the prophets that Samuel had set up. All right, anything else as we get into uh, the last little bit of chapter nine, and then we get into chapter 10, the person of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> And just had that note that we should uh, at least talk about the numbers in the book of Job. And so tonight we're going to pick up, um, it's good to get in the Bible. Matthew chapter 22 is where we will begin. Chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. So you're thinking New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Romans, or you just type it in. <laughs> I know. Usually I, I have to have a little bit of a banter for the catechism kids to kind of page around, like find, they find the gospel of John nowhere in first John or first Chronicles is not first Corinthians. Um, but then I just type it on in my computer and then it's on the screen. Uh, so Matthew chapter 22 verses 34 through 40, when they heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees met together. One of them who was an expert in the law asked him a question trying to trap him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. All right. So looking at that selection in particular, what was the intent of the Pharisees question, testing him, um, trying to trap him. <laughs> this is where, where in, in that chapter of Matthew, where there's like group after group that tries to trip Jesus up. It's like um, Thursday, no, maybe Tuesday or possibly Wednesday of Holy Week. I think the, the popular opinion or the most popular opinion is that nothing happened on Wednesday. It was just a quiet day for Jesus and his disciples. Um, although, you know, some have made the argument that this took place on Wednesday, but this took place during Holy Week, either Tuesday or Wednesday. And then how does Jesus' answer reflect the structure of the Ten Commandments? Yeah, definitely. That we, we and that's a very neat division that the first tablet is about our relationship to God. And the second tablet is our relationship to our neighbor. Um, and, and so the first tablet would be like commandments one, two, and three, and then commandments four through 10 would be the other set. Um, the, 
the the one historical note that we add to that is you know that's that's a very nice like mental division um but when moses brought the tablets down from mount sinai uh the first time and the second time it was two copies that were written front and back so if you think of the the first tablet as the first tablet of the law as written on the front side of the tablet commandments one two and three and then on the back side was commandments four through ten um that they and they were two copies of the same thing um which is you know and just a little historical note that you know most of the time doesn't <laughs> doesn't come in but it's a, but it's at least helpful to to remember that when you're reading through exodus and you're like okay what's going on here <laughs> um so what about this one evaluate this statement every sin is a sin against the first commandment yeah you, you break one part of the law you break it all um and that every sin yeah at, at its core every sin is a breaking of the first commandment um, because it it means that I'm loving something else above what God has commanded or told me to love. Um, and so when 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 we teach the commandments, I often teach the kids that you can look at the commandments, you know, from both directions, actually, that you can look at it from the light of the first commandment that, you know, breaking of the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth um, are all in the light of breaking the first commandment first. Um, that, you know, it is not love for God that prompted somebody to stay home and continually absent themselves from, from worship. Um, it's not love for God that prompted me to, you know, tear down my neighbor's reputation. Or looking at it from the other side, the, you know, commandments 9 and 10, the, the coveting commandments, um, in that, though that's more in relation to our neighbor, I suppose, or what's going on internally, that that coveting starts internally before somebody moves on the action and so if we look at the commandments in from the other direction from nine and ten um that you know if i if i'm tearing down somebody else's reputation then i am coveting something that they have and i want to destroy what they have um as an example um, breaking the ninth or tenth commandment um as well as the eighth commandment anything else Then we get into the three types of the law, the civil, ceremonial, and moral law. Uh, this is Matthew 5, and then we'll be in Colossians 2. All right, Matthew 5, verse 17. Do we have a volunteer for that one? Excellent. Thank you. Um, and so we'll talk about this uh, this coming Sunday, um, being the first Sunday in the season of Lent. The gospel reading is always the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness which it's a little, it, thematically it works, um, even though chronologically the temptation of Jesus was at the beginning of his three-year ministry and Lent is just, you know, 47 days before Easter. <laughs> but, the, but, the, but the theme of it works, even if the chronology of it might be a little bit confusing the first, you know, time or 10, um, time or 10 around. And so when he talks about Jesus coming to fulfill the law, we'll get into this in the next section as well is that Jesus didn't just die for our sin as if to take away our sin, um, to get us back from, you know, being negative back to zero, but he also obeyed God's law completely to give us his perfect account or his perfect righteousness in place of that. Um, so we talk about the, you know, forgiveness of sin or the removal of guilt. And there's a, you know, a, a whole handful of different words that we use there, like expiation to, to blot out my iniquity. Um, but then we also do, <laughs> maybe should more, um, talk about the active obedience of Christ, where it is his active obedience, his actively obeying God's law that is your perfect record and mine. So his righteousness that is accounted as ours isn't just the lack of sin, but it is also the act of holiness, the, the actively keeping of God's law that is counted as ours. Uh, let's look at that one from Colossians 2. Uh, Colossians 2, this is, this is helpful as we talk about the three different categories of the law, three different types of the law. Uh, Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink or in regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, 
these are a shadow of the things that were coming, but the body belongs to Christ. Um, and so the image there in verse 17 is, is that, you know, you're, you're sitting here on a nice sunny day and you don't see the person who's walking this way on the parking lot, but the sun is behind them. And so you see their shadow before they show up. Um, you know, maybe you've had that experience where you're sitting in your front living room and you see the shadow of the UPS driver because everybody uses UPS and not FedEx. Right. Um, you see the shadow of the UPS delivery person delivering a package to your door before you hear the, the knock on the door or you see the person. Um, and, and so that's the image here that those things were a shadow of the things were, that were coming. But that's why he uses the term body. Uh, but the, I think the NIV said the reality um, is found in Christ, which gets us into the three types of the law. Um, and we see this in particular in the Old Testament. Um, it doesn't play nearly as big of a role in the New Testament. Um, what do we know about, uh, we'll take these one by one. We'll, we'll start with the, the easy one, the moral law. Um, anything that we had from our reading, this would probably be a week or two ago by now. Um, but what do we mean when we talk about God's moral law? is toward the end of chapter nine. Yeah. All right. So it's the law that is written in a person's heart. Um, and, and that that law is a, is a moral command and it, it applies to all people of, of all time. I don't know where that was. Uh, all people of all time. So this would be page 223. Um, we're working backwards here. But if you're following along in your textbook, it'd be page 223, where he talks about God's moral law. And so God's moral law, it applies to all people of all time. It's um, part of the conscience that God has written onto every person's heart, even though that conscience may be completely clouded over by, by culture, by misperception, by misunderstanding, by false religion. Um, by unbelief, and you could, you know, go on, go on with uh, all the things that cloud over the conscience. Um, and that's where, you know, one of the one of the arguments in favor of Christianity and in favor of God's moral law is to say that, you know, every every culture, um, at least every culture that has built itself up to any extent, has had some sort of an object of law where, you know, Hammurabi's moral code said that if you steal from somebody, well, we're going to cut your hand off. Or if you build a building that is going to fall down, well, we're going to put you into your own house and then knock it down on top of you, <laughs> you know? Um, it, he demonstrated a, a strong understanding of um, the value of human life, at the very least, as an element of God's moral law. Uh, working our way backward, how about the ceremonial law? This would be probably page 222. Yeah, the ceremonial law, the worship life is the you know, perfect synonym for it. This is the worship law. Um, and so that, and, and the interesting thing, you know, we'll get to this in just a minute when we talk about like the nation of Israel as a nation. Um, but their worship law included a lot of um, what we would call health regulations. Um, because if somebody had the status of being clean or unclean, that meant whether they were able to enter into, you know, the, the worship life of the nation of Israel, as well as carry on business with people in the nation of Israel. That if somebody is unclean, let's say, for instance, um, you had some mildew in your house, and, um, and you touched it, <laughs> or somebody else had a had a had some sort of a skin rash and they touched a jar in your house and then you touched the jar, um, that would make you ceremonially unclean um, according to the ceremonial law. And then you would be unclean until um, either if you were the one with the, the skin rash, then you would show it to the priest and then the priest would give you the A-OK -okay, and then you'd follow the sacrifices and then you'd be incorporated back into the worship life. Um, but with, with worship, intended as such a, a large element of Israel's worship of Israel's everyday life, 
It also meant that if you were ceremonially unclean, such as, well, you just had to bury your dead relative and, um, and now you have to be, you know, sequestered away from people for another week, um, then any, any sort of disease concern would have been you know, automatically quarantined is the, the, the idea there. Um, and so the, the ceremonial law is, is, there is some overlap with the civil law that we'll see in a little bit, but God attaches a specific spiritual purpose to it. Um, because with the ceremonial law, what he's teaching is, is how the people can be made clean. Um, and that the shedding of blood is what you need in order to be made clean and come into God's presence. Um, that, uh, that ceremonial law also includes the, um, you know, the five major sacrifices, as well as the, I think the three or five major festivals of the, of the, of the Israelite year. Uh, three times a year, they're supposed to come to Jerusalem for one of the major festivals, um, such as, you know, Passover, the Feast of Booths, um, the Feast, Festival of Lights um, was a later addition, but we hear about it in the Gospel of John. Um, so all that to say, you know, worship law is, uh, is a perfect synonym for it. How about the civil law? So I guess um, get us back into page 220 and 221. I like the synonym that he uses there. Yeah. Yeah, the government, um, the political law. And, um, and so that, that includes um, the idea of when God set up Israel as a nation, um, he didn't, he didn't like institute a police force or an arm or a standing army, but he, he did institute cities of refuge throughout the land of Israel. So that if I accidentally killed somebody, you know, we would call it like man, manslaughter. Um, I was driving carelessly and smacked somebody else and they didn't make it. Um, then somebody else from his clan or his tribe or his family could come after me to exact retribution, either, you know, some sort of payment uh, to compensate the family for their loss or an eye for an eye and a life for a life. Um, and that's where part of the, the civil law, for instance, is that God set up these cities of refuge set, spread throughout the nation of Israel, so that if I accidentally killed somebody, manslaughter, um, then I could go to that city and have refuge until it was all settled out properly. So it wouldn't just be, you know, devolve into the Hatfields and the McCoys, which were only what, three, three and a half hours away from here. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so the, the interesting part is that all three of these are, are woven together, especially in the Old Testament. If you read through Exodus um, and Leviticus in particular, Leviticus has a whole lot of ceremonial law related to what you, you know, um, the godly use of the body and what to avoid. In, in a lot of that, as well as what to look for, for certain rashes and skin lesions and the sort of things that you and I would go to a hospital for today. Um, as well as, I guess this is the other major part about the ceremonial law, their worship life, that also included all their dietary restrictions. Um, and the, the, like the short, short form way of saying that isn't just, well, avoid shellfish and pork and eels. Um, it's avoid everything that's kind of on the borderline. So you look at a lobster, is that, is that a fish or is that a, um, is that a other creature it looks like a giant bug? Um, but a lobster looks like it's kind of in between, in between types. Um, and so God says, don't eat those. Um, you look at an eel, it lives in the ocean, but it doesn't have, doesn't have, um, scales and, and gills the same way that fish does. And so God says, don't eat those. Um, so if you, if they avoid the in-between animals and then they avoid, uh, what we would call like scavengers. So God says, don't eat pork because, you know, from, from what we can see, um, obviously it was, it was a part and parcel of their worship life, but we also see that, you know, a lobster is a scavenger, um, a pork, uh, a pig is something that will eat pretty much everything and anything. Um, and so in that sense, it's kind of a scavenger. And so, you know, some people have tried to understand like the health benefits of following a, a Jewish diet versus a, you know, mainstream American diet or in that form. Um, yeah, by the time Jesus has come, um, 
the the civil law is is greatly reduced because they i mean god had god had constituted them as a theocracy um where he would he would govern them through a series of prophets and that lasted for around 400 years um the the prophets and the judges and if you read the book of judges it's just like this horrible downward spiral it just keeps repeating itself um and so when they when they ask for a king that was that was their first step away from what god had constituted them to be um first step away from their civil law um by the time jesus has come um there's still you read through the you know through the gospels and especially uh first corinthians um which is that first generation after christ um first you know first and second corinthians written around you know 60 ish uh 55 to 60 ad and you see that there's there's all these jewish people by that time who are spread across the mediterranean and they have held on to these ceremonial laws like dietary laws clothing laws yeah that's another one that you can't wear clothing of mixed fabrics so um you know if jeans they make them more comfortable now by weaving in a little bit of spandex but that would be cotton and spandex in one clothing item or a cotton and polyester in a shirt well you can't do that you wear all one you know all polyester or all linen or all all cotton whatever the case may be um but by the time of the the new testament church you know like the time of the book of acts there's all these christians all these you know jewish people spread across the mediterranean who are still following these laws because the the side effect um and i think part of the intended purpose of this was to segregate the jewish people away as a people who are separate um that it was that it was something that was a little bit more challenging and onerous to say well you know i'm going to pizza party but i need just um just cheese and and sauce on, on my bread i can't have sausage on my pizza you know um or that you look different with your the way that the men would have their hair cut or you know not cut at the what they call the corners of your head um and the beard um and so i guess first you know rewind back to the time of moses when god set up the nation of israel that all throughout the old especially the pentateuch the first five books of the old testament we've got ceremonial civil and moral all overlapping with one another because it's all one unit because god is speaking to israel and where you see this in particular um is the third commandment think of the third commandment remember remember the sabbath day by keeping it holy and we're like okay give me like 20 minutes to explain why we don't follow a sabbath day but we still follow the principle behind the third commandment um so the first question that you often get is how do you how do you figure out which part of the old testament law you you do follow and which part you don't follow because if you spend any any sort of time online you'd probably encounter some sort of atheist who is like well if you believe this then you should also believe that you know then they'll pull out some obscure law from the book of Le leviticus um it, it's a you know silly straw man argument and and it's a simple one to make i guess um so the question how do you know which is civil which is ceremonial which is moral and that's why I started, you know, in kind of in reverse that the moral law, it applies to all people of all time. And you'll see all the principle of, of the moral law repeated in the New Testament. And in that sense, the, the Ten Commandments is, um, is the best summary that we have of God's moral law, uh, as long as we remember that it was given in a context to the nation of Israel. So it was encased in, um, in in terminology and and civil and ceremonial regulations that applied to the nation of israel so god didn't just say um we should fear and love god that we do not despise preaching in his word but gladly hear and learn it god said remember the sabbath day because that was how his children of israel were to remember the sabbath day now in the new testament um you've got the injunctions to let us not give up meeting together um, for instance, let us pay close attention to the apostolic word, like First Peter chapter one. 
Um, and you have a nice, beautiful discussion in the book of Hebrews chapter four about what is the, what is the Sabbath rest. Um, and that in Hebrews chapter four, like this one, <laughs> I, I don't know if it was a good choice or not. Um, in one Bible, his Bible instruction class that, that I actually pastor Nass wrote it. And then I modified it, um, you know, like a decade ago, um, there's a, a longer discussion on what is the Sabbath. And we look at, um, at Hebrews chapter four, and we see in Hebrews chapter four that even though the Israelites may have kept the Sabbath, God said that they didn't enjoy his Sabbath. Even though they kept the Saturday rest day, they never entered his eternal rest because of their unbelief. And so it's, it's a little bit of a longer discussion, but that, that kind of gets you in through, I guess, through the back door to understand that um, the primary thing about the, the Sabbath commandment is that God wants his people to find rest in his word. And that belief in that word means listening to it, hearing it, um, applying it, treasuring it. Um, and the rest of the New Testament shows that the moral injunction of the third commandment remember the Sabbath day, is applied to us not in the, the casing of a civil ceremonial regulation, but in the responsibility to, you know, pay attention to the word of God, to read, hear, and believe it. Um, and that, that's, I guess that's probably the, the, the thorniest and the most challenging um, of the, you know, the ways to kind of tease out the distinctions between the civil ceremonial and moral I guess the, the other major one that I see um, most often is when, when people look at uh, the Old Testament, whether it's you know, the Pentateuch or the Old Testament prophets, and they, they take promises that God said specifically there and apply them to our nation today. Um, where, you know, God says, return to me, O land, and, and if, you, if you return, rend your hearts and return to me, then I will bless you. Um, and people will just take that straight out of what is it, Exodus or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, I don't even know offhand. And they'll say, well, this is what we have to do as an American nation. Um, because God, God promises that if we return to him, then he will bless us. Um, that may be, but that's not what that passage is saying. That God had encased that, um, you know, spoken by that prophet at that particular time. Um, to a people who he had chosen to be his own and who he had set up to be his own. Um, and, and it may be that, you know, the natural result perhaps is that if people, when people return to the Lord, when they treasure his word, that they, that they see more blessing in their lives, that what used to be confusing isn't confusing anymore. Um, that's what I see most often, I guess, when it comes to like Bible instruction class, um, but I think it's, it's out of context to say, well, that what God said to his Old Testament nation of Israel there um, is something that we can now directly apply to our United States of America as if, as if America is this also uniquely Christian nation. Um, yeah. and, and so I guess the other, the other confusing one about the ceremonial law is, um, is just that understanding of how much of God's ceremonial law applies to us. Um, and this, you'll see this, you know, with the Seventh-day Adventists who will say you have to set aside Saturday as a day of worship and rest and you do nothing except sit at church for like four hours and, and have breakfast with your church people and you have lunch with your church people and you sing songs and do all your stuff. I mean, that's cool, <laughs> right? Um, but it's, it's not in line with what God says about the Sabbath day as God explains it. And, and I think the other part where I've seen that come in is um, particularly among like Baptists of the Southern Baptist Convention and some of the more conservative uh, Presbyterians is that they look at the world around them and they say, you know, what we really need is to take a Sabbath. You know, the idea, the, the idea of taking a, a rest day, uh, a day that is always aside as sacred and, you know, there's no soccer on this day. There's no work on this day. We're going to have this day together. Um, and that, that's, I think that's a great idea. 
um, in principle, but to try to base it on God's commandment of the Sabbath day is also an incorrect understanding of what God is saying and a confusion of this civil ceremonial and moral law. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, I, I hear that. And part of me is like, that's so awesome. And part of me is like, that must've been like a completely different planet from where we live now. Um, to, to say that like Sunday was all, everything was closed and you're, you're at home with your family. And, and, and I mean, that phenomenon, um, ties in exactly with, with a number of other cultural phenomena. um, that, and in 1972, Nixon took us off the gold standard, you know, for better or for worse, I'm not an economist, thank God. Um, but the group that grew up in the eighties was the first group of what we call latchkey kids. Um, the group that grew up in the 90s was the first group that was um, raised from a young age in daycare. And then the millennials, which is basically my, my generation, I think I'm on the slightly older edge of it. So people in their 30s <laughs> are the first group of people who are raising children when they themselves had a daycare as a regular daily and or weekly experience growing up. Um, and so I, I, I think, you know, all those things are connected in some way. Um, the easy one would be to say, you know, since we came off the gold standard and the government can print as much money as they want, um, real wages have, have cut in half. So, you know, not to get too economical, but I was just talking about this with somebody. So what, what you were able to supply and provide for your family with, with one income and mom, mom raising the children now comes close to needing almost two incomes at, at today's modern wages. Um, which, you know, is neither here nor there, but it is, it does provide new challenge and new opportunity for, for our church and to hold up that, that beautiful ideal of let's have a day where we don't have to be running everywhere. And let's have a day where even if Kroger is open, we don't have to go there today. Anyway, that was, that was part of a paper that I wrote um, probably about two years ago by now. Um, I can send you a copy eventually. Yeah, even if even if everything is closed, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be sinful to have it open, um, and merely close having everything closed, but not taking the time to spend you know time with the Lord and His Word, um, miss, would miss the point entirely. Um, although I I would I would agree, and this is probably your experience as well, that there is some there was some civic benefit that we have missed and lost out on. Um, and that, I mean, that was kind of interesting going to Vickering in Canada, um, and then serving up there, you know, for a couple of years as a pastor is that up there, Good Friday is like, is huge. Um, and, and, and like no other Christian holiday is readily recognized, but like Good Friday, there is so much cultural guilt. I don't know if it's the French Catholic influence or the, the Anglican, like basically English Catholic <laughs> background, um, or what it is, but Good Friday, everything is closed. Even even Tim Hortons is closed on Good Friday. <laughs> I had that in in my hometown too, that uh, that everything closed between one and three on Good Friday, and then um, the big St. Paul in downtown Appleton, uh, which if you're a Thrivent member, that's where Thrivent was born, more or less. Um, they had a three-hour service from like noon until three as well. All right. Anything else um, on the civil ceremonial and moral? If you if you think of this, you know, looking at Acts chapter ten and Peter and Cornelius and Peter's vision, and then um, Acts chapter twelve, I think he talks about it, and then Acts chapter fifteen is the big meeting at Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council, um, which is and it's probably um, it's probably before the Jerusalem Council when when the Apostle Paul writes the book of Acts. Or the book of uh, Galatians. Sorry. Yeah, the, the that's the other part about uh, like the book of Acts is that primarily it um, it follows the the outline that that Jesus gives in Acts chapter one before he ascends. He says, "You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth." And so, if you watch for that, there are like four different landmarks of the gospel reaching you know in within Jerusalem and Judea. And then spreading to Samaria uh, with Philip, 
and then the apostles went up there and then it was kind of confirmed with the apostolic authority and then all the way to the ends of the earth is where it ends or where it concludes um and it's and it primarily follows follows paul's mission work uh for his his four missionary journeys whether there's a fifth we don't we can't say for certain um but there's we hear about the martyrdom of james early on and then the james at the jerusalem council is probably the half brother of jesus um probably also the author of the book of james and he also has probably a full sibling named jude or judas who wrote the book of jude um but there's like four jameses in the new testament they get really confusing <laughs> um and so in Acts chapter 10, Peter has that vision from God. And you remember it happens three times. This sheet comes down with all sorts of animals and, and God says, get up, kill and eat. And Peter's like, surely not. I've never eaten any of those. <laughs> you know, that's a big no-no um, because that's what he was brought up in. And you're thinking like, this is almost 1500 years of people being taught you don't associate with those people don't wear that clothing don't eat this food and don't touch that thing over there um and and in that respect it's incredible that in within the first century after christ so basically the 70 years from like year 33 or 31 or 35 but probably 33 all the way to the writing of the book of revelation um, the issue of ceremonial, you know, the worship law has been largely taken care of. Um, it consumes like that entire time period, but it's, it's mostly taken care of by the end of it. And the question is, you know, to what extent, now that we aren't bound by these ceremonial worship laws, how do we use our Christian freedom properly? And, um, and that, that's the major topic of, you know, the book of, um, book of first corinthians uh first corinthians especially 12 13 and 14 paul does a fantastic oreo cookie there um chapter 12 and chapter 14 with uh that section on love sandwiched right in the middle uh the cream filling of the oreo um because he's demonstrating that the the proper use of my christian freedom isn't to just say i can do what i want so move out of the way the proper use is to say how do we I um, use my freedom to so that's when we get to the topic of Christian freedom, that's what's you know challenging a little bit is because most of the New Testament examples are drawing from the ceremonial law. Um, with the book of Galatians, what probably happened with Galatians, so that'd be like Acts, um, Acts 15 and 16, I guess, 14, 15, 16, I forget. Maybe it starts in 13. Boy, you need a new pastor. Um, <clears throat> anyway, the book of Galatians, Paul has his first missionary journey up into the Central Asia Minor, Central Turkey. He does kind of a fish hook up there and then he comes back. And shortly, sometime after he gets back to Jerusalem and then up back up to Antioch, he hears that those churches um, have been infected with the, the Judaizers is the term that we use these these jewish men who wanted to pay lip service to jesus but say that oh by the way you also have to follow all these ceremonial laws or else you're not truly a christian and that these laws are necessary for salvation that if you don't do this then you're forfeiting your salvation um and that's when paul hears about it and he's like in a sweat and he he writes off dashes off the letter of galatians and sends it up there and then it's um, probably a year or two after that, that you have the Jerusalem Council, where the Jerusalem Council comes out with their, their statement on, you know, what do we do about food sacrifice to idols, about um, sexual immorality, about um, meat that has blood in it, and something else, I forget the last part. Yeah, so it's, um, it's kind of interesting in that regard is the exercise of, of Christian freedom, or they're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus is like, don't tell anybody until I've risen from the dead. And they're like, what do you think he means by rising from the dead? <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah, keep, keep this to yourself. Okay. <laughs> Not going to happen. Um, and then we get to the three uses of the law, talking about a mirror curb and guide 
or a guide or a rule. I like to um, I like to include that um, you know expand on that guide terminology, um, like a guide for thankful Christian living. Um, so seeing the law as after after you after God has brought you through this entire thing where He's He's shown your sin. Um, and he's curbed your behavior. And, and in that sense, I mean, the curb applies to all people. Um, the, the conscience is, in some cases, is the only thing that restricts people from, from theft or from murder. Um, the mirror also works with all people because all people have a conscience. Um, and if you just observe popular culture for 20 minutes and you'll see the different ways that people try to try to ignore and, um, and, you know, squirm away from the mirror of God's law. Well, if you tell me it's wrong, then I'm going to tell you, we're going to, we're going to celebrate the heck out of it. <laughs> Fill in the blank with whatever you want, or just find some way of, um, of distracting myself so that I don't have to think about it. I'm too busy with my work. I can't even think about my guilty conscience. Um, but with, with all of these, I think I mentioned this before that even though one of these three uses may be intended, um, that all three are going to be in view, that all three can be operative um, at the same time. And so, you know, the, the typical format of, of a sermon, for instance, will often include some sort of, you know, encouragement at the end, um, where hopefully after we've heard an announcement of forgiveness, then you're like, God's law doesn't accuse me anymore. I've been set free. I've been given a new life. This is fantastic. And that's where the law as a guide or the law as a rule is, is most helpful. You don't have to say, oh boy, what do I have to do to, to say thank you to God? How can I do this? Should I just, you know, dream something up, go on a pilgrimage? Um, no, just look back at God's law and, um, and see your new relationship to it and say, well, this is how I show my love for God by obeying his commands and his commands aren't burdensome anymore. They're, they're a joy. Um, like the idea I run in the path of your commands for you have set my heart free. Um, and so the guide for thankful Christian living, um, that that's always, at least for me, that's always been one of the more challenging elements of the sermon. You know, if I want to have some sort of encouragement, usually I, I, I end up with, you know, some specific congregational application, like, you know, here's, here's a little bit about our, you know, our invitations for Easter. We'll have a stack in the back and, you know, you can bring one home, share with a friend, um, or some other congregational application. Like this is why we, we appreciate, you know, standing around, um, the Lord's altar, because then you can see these people that you're in fellowship with. Um, I'm not, because, because I'm always a little, a little bit concerned that I don't want to leave people, you know, with the, with God, the, the wrong element of God's law hitting them. Like you have this fantastic sermon and then you kill it with now, now go and, and love your neighbor in whatever form that takes. And everybody's like, Oh, <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe that's overthinking it. And then finally, the, the categories of sin, uh, this will wrap us up for tonight. Um, commission and omission. Um, if you, you know, you make the, the short verb form of that to commit versus omit. So commit uh, commission, the bad things we do omit the, the good that we leave undone, um, internal versus external, you know, sins of, of thought and mind, um, versus sins of action. Um, it's, a, it's at least helpful um, for, you know, parsing it out or especially, you know, explaining it to, to somebody who's new to the faith or to a child. Um, the idea of venial and mortal, that is primarily a concept from the, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and we talk about this on page 200, 243. He has... Um, we talk about it, maybe this, this is one of the, the weaker, weaker paragraphs or so of the entire book. <laughs> um, when he talks about, talks about mortal sin, and even that part in italics on page 243, that mortal sins by definition are sins that kill faith. Um, but 
okay, then what is a mortal sin? You know, which, which sin is not, you know, antagonistic to my faith. Um, and that's where, and, and that's where he kind of tries to break it out a little bit with those four elements at the bottom of page 243. A mortal sin is a sin that is committed consciously, um, that the person that knows it is doing it knows that it is a sin. Uh, number two is with premeditation planned out in advance, uh, committed without a struggle against it. Um, like, I don't care. And then without repentance, without sorrow or remorse, uh, with no intention to amend or undo the damage done. Um, and I'll do it again if I get the chance. Um, and I think this is where, you know, one of those set of categories that is less helpful because, you know, first we have to talk about the Roman Catholic terminology of this. When you talk about a mortal sin versus a venial sin, um, a mortal sin is something that even if you confess it, um, it doesn't go away. You're, you're stuck with it. And so the, the terminology of mortal sin is a gigantic lever to pile up the guilt to say, okay, you can do those other things, but if you do those, go confess to your priest. If you do those other things, um, don't even bother. It's, um, and, and in that sense, um, looking at the way that he breaks it out in, at the bottom of 243, I understand the, the dogmatic approach of trying to find a proper use for these terms and understand them properly but the practical or the pastoral approach would be to say, you know, just forget it entirely. Because <laughs> I mean, which of us, um, myself included, if you look at, at numbers one, two, three, and, and four, um, I'm like, yeah, I've, I can think of various stages, various times in my life. Um, and sometimes that went on for a long time. Maybe it was, you know, just the summer job and the people I was working with. And I just ended up doing all the things that they did. And I explained it away, you know, made all the excuses in the world. Um, you look at that and pastorally, so much focus on what is a mortal sin versus a venial sin. You can like, I would, I would, you know, cross it out in, in pencil, but you could probably cross out that entire last little paragraph because it's it, in a practical way, it's not helpful and it doesn't add much to the conversation um, because what we want to see in relation to that is the way Paul describes sin in Romans chapter six. Um, you know, Romans six begins, well, you know, we've been forgiven. So why shouldn't, you know, why should I, you know, avoid sin? Um, I should go on sinning if my sin amplifies God's grace. Maybe I'll put it up here on the screen and then that'll, there we go. Should we, yeah, there we go. Verse one, shall we keep on sinning so that grace may increase? And Paul says, well, no, you, you died to sin. Um, he's not, he's not parsing out, well, is this, is this just a little sin or is this a sin that is potentially dangerous to your faith? <laughs> no, you died to sin. You're, you, you've been raised to a new life. Let's, let's not try to slice and dice sin into, yes. And, and that, and that is the sin against the Holy Spirit is, is the one mortal sin. Because the only mortal sin really is unbelief. And so the, the sin against the Holy Spirit um, as, as a subset of unbelief is, is a purposeful sort of unbelief um, where somebody, you know, and, and, and it probably follows the characteristics that he laid out there at the bottom of 243. But he, I think he casts too wide of a net with that term mortal sin. You could narrow this down to sin against the Holy Spirit perhaps, um, that somebody has had experience, you know, an instruction in the word of God, they have, you know, seen or experienced the grace of God. Um, and they, they purposefully, you know, deny it, push it away, and, and are antagonistic to it. Um, the example in the New Testament that we have, you know, of somebody, you know, we can't even say for certain, who probably committed this sin was the Pharisees who saw, they heard Jesus preach, they saw him do his miracles, and they said, well, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. And we need to find a way to kill this guy. And well, let's kill Lazarus too, while we're at it. Um, where they had 
heard Jesus preach. They, they saw the miracles that, they, that he did. Um, the kingdom of God ha had come to them, <laughs> was right there. And, uh, and Jesus says, you know, I long to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks, and you were not willing that, and, and this is, you know, maybe something that we could have covered back in um, the part about theology of God, you know, the theology proper, talking about the study of God. But that, you know, when God, when God acts in, you know, without means, so when, when he returns on judgment day and he just shows up, um, that is completely irresistible. When God says all people are going to be raised from the dead to gather and stand before me, and you don't have a choice in the matter. Well, when God acts through means such as, you know, words and, you know, and sacrament, um, that is, that is resistible that we don't, we don't set up, you know, God acting through his means as, as compared to God's almighty power or his omnipotence, as if to say only one of these can be true. Well, when God acts without means, we know that he, his almighty power is completely irresistible and, and unlimited, but the fact that God has chosen to communicate his truth in words and to um, use the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit through those words to create faith, um, God also, in his wisdom, has made that means of the gospel and word and sacrament as something that is resistible. And in so doing, some who, you know, this, is, this was basically Isaiah's preaching ministry in Isaiah 6, some who have heard the word of God, um, and who have heard it more often, you know, they get more comfortable and more accustomed to resisting it more. And they might fall into that camp of um, the sin against the Holy Spirit. And, you know, either way, um, whether it's just, you know, bland, basic unbelief, or this very purposeful repression of belief, um, either way, you know, the person with unbelief or the person who repressed their belief is going to be equally damned when Jesus shows up. Um, and so in that sense, unbelief is the only, is the only mortal sin. And the only solution to that is to talk with people. <laughs> yeah. That takes us a little bit over time, but that finishes out uh, chapter nine for us. Next time we'll get into chapter 10, the person of Christ, that if you didn't think it was interesting so far, just wait, it gets better. <laughs> we'll close with prayer. We thank you, Lord Jesus, um, for resurrecting us from being spiritually dead and your enemies. We thank you for incorporating us into your body, for making us your own, for forgiving our sin and crediting us with your righteousness. We ask that you continue to keep us in this faith and, uh, and unite us in this um, through you so that we may bring glory to your name both now and forever. Amen. Thank you very much.